Welcome to Talk With Me. This is Marsha Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas on a beautiful almost spring day. It's March 5th, 2018. And I'm going to just jump right into saying this show is brought to you courtesy of Johnny Longfellow <laughs> because I had the opportunity to do a show with Johnny who has lots of things going on, including his online poetry site, Bad Acid Laboratories and Midnight Lane Boutique. Um, and Johnny said, oh, if you can, this person would be an amazing guest. She has been a mentor to me and so many other people. So I would love to have you do this. And the, the uh, challenges of technology mean we've delayed this show uh, beyond when we had hoped to first record it. So Johnny's been on pins and needles for quite a long time waiting for this to happen. And this that I'm talking about is talk with me and my guest, Rena P. Espyat. And I'm excited from our emails, from our little conversation. I know this is going to be a great hour. Welcome, Rena. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, if only I'm technologically. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what phones and computers and internet and all that can do and not do sometimes, huh? <laughs> oh, it is. It is. So for people who have not yet been introduced to you, what are just a few of the highlights for them to have some context about, context about you? What, what would be good for people to know as we start this conversation? Well, I guess I, I would introduce myself as... Uh, as um, a bi by everything person, bilingual, bicultural, binational. I was born in the Dominican Republic. My first language is Spanish. Uh, but I grew up in this country, first in New York from the age of seven onward. So I am, uh, I'm, I guess I'm everything. We were speaking before about, uh, about how I grew up surrounded by other immigrants like me from every corner of the world. Uh -huh. And that was a very exciting way to grow up because New York is kind of uh, slices of the world. So I picked up little bits of, uh, of other languages here and there, learned to eat other foods, uh, fed my friends what my mother cooked. <laughs> and uh, and it was uh, it was a kind of um, it was an upbringing that allowed me to enlarge the circle a lot. That's really wonderful, and and it makes me wonder if part of that is specific to New York. I don't know. And the reason I think I, I'm questioning or or pondering that is because my own uh, grandparents were immigrants from Russia, who made a big point of trying to bring up their kids as American as possible. So sadly, my mom and her sister and brother missed a lot of the rich culture of learning the rich culture of their, their parents. Uh, their parents didn't want them to have an accent on their English, so tried not to speak Russian at home, things like that. And, and, and it left me curious you know, I wanted to know more, and, and they didn't really talk about it very much. Yes, there were two alternate ways of bringing up immigrant children, and that was one of them. But my parents did it the other way. 
My father said to me when I was still a child, just just beginning to learn English and very eager to come home and say everything in the house that I had learned in school during the day. Let me tell you this story. Let me tell you what my teacher said about the pilgrims and so on. And of course, I wanted to do it in English because that was a novelty. Uh And my father said, uh, no, if it can be said at all, it can be said best in Spanish. So Uh outside of this door, it's all going to be English because that's the world we're living in. But once you pass that door into this apartment, it's all Spanish because Uh I want you to remain who you are and hold on to your culture. And at first, I I used to have tantrums over it because I wanted to speak quickly what was still on my mind, fresh Uh from PS94. And he said, no, no, tell it to me in, in Spanish. And then once you go outside that door again, you'll be back with your friends. And I was <laughs> I was so grateful for it. Very soon uh-huh. I became very grateful because I realized that uh, that being an immigrant and having another language and maybe even an accent for a time as I did doesn't divide you. It doesn't divide your loyalty, or your identity or anything. On the contrary, what it does is multiply you. Ah. So he was telling me indirectly, really, that I had a chance to be, to be more, not less. That's wonderful. What what prompted your parents to settle in New York? They were political exiles. Uh-huh. They they were. And my father was a minor diplomat. He worked for his uncle, who was uh, as ambassadorial rank. He was a minister from the Dominican Republic, a political minister in Washington D.C. And he took my father with him and other members of the legation, because they were working for the government of uh, of Trujillo, who who of course uh, was was one of the most terrible, cruelest dictators in the Americas. Until he was uh, he was assassinated in 1961, but he did in 1937 something that my father found unforgivable and that my uncle absolutely found unforgivable. He murdered thousands of Haitians on the border between my country and Haiti. Mm-hmm. We share an island. We share the island of Hispaniola. And when he did that, my great uncle communicated with him and told him, "I cannot." be an employee of of a, of a dictator of a of a government that commits murder on innocent people so of course they were all called exiles and enemies of the fatherland and so forth and um and my they never could go back while the dictator was alive mm-hmm. so that's how we ended up in washington and um, my my parents went to new york to look for jobs because they had nothing except the valise with whatever was in the valise uh-huh. So uh, they, my he, my father went to New York to look for work and a place to live and you know a foothold, a foothold in a new world. Uh-huh. And my mother did a very, uh, a very either courageous or very crazy thing. I haven't figured out which it was. <laughs> she took me back with her to the DR so that she could say goodbye to the family. She said, I, I, I can sense that I'm never going to see my mother again if I don't see her right now. And she was right. She went back. She stayed a few weeks. She picked up her sewing machine, which was her means of earning a living. She said goodbye to my father's family as well as her own, and she dropped me in, in my grandmother's house, my father's mother's house, because she knew I would be safe there. Uh-huh. 
And then she came back when joined my father in New York. And in and, and about uh, two years, two years after that, I guess it was close to, uh, they sent for me. And I came with a friend of one of my aunts who, who said that I was her little, her little niece. Uh-huh. I was no such thing, but that was how she got me out of the country and, and to New York to my parents. Mm-hmm. So uh, <clears throat> I really got to know the cultures of both countries, mm-hmm. one as a child and one uh, as I matured. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with English right away. English is wonderful. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it's so different from, from my own language, which I also love. Uh-huh. And what that did was to give me um, a chance and a great desire also to translate between the two languages. Uh-huh. And I started doing that fairly young, and now I've translated Robert Frost and Richard Wilbur and uh, many people from the 17th century in England, um, all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of poems from English to Spanish, and of course others from Spanish to English. Mm-hmm. I've translated a lot of uh, St. John of the Cross and dozens of poems. Because what the immigrant wants to do, of course, is to is to join the two halves of himself, the two pieces of himself, uh-huh. and become a whole unified person. So I did that with language. Ah, oh, beautiful. At what point in all that did you start writing your own in terms of poetry or whatever genres you started with? Well, I had I had started that as a very young child before I could write, really. My grandmother wrote poetry, my paternal grandmother. She wrote poetry, and she used to have gatherings in the house of friends who wrote or who told stories or who played the guitar or the piano or violin. She had a lot of friends who did creative things, and, of course, that was all free TV. Uh-huh. There was no TV in those days. If you wanted to be amused, you had to amuse yourself. With with whatever you had. So they got together and they did very uh, 19th century things. They told stories. They recited. They did uh, tableau vivant. Do you know what that is? Only the tab- vaguely. The bab- tableau vivant, you have people who uh, take a pose and you have to see it physically with, with your eyes in order to understand it fully. But anyway, they, they stand in a certain pose that is dramatic. It's very, very corny. Uh-huh. And then they, they go into the meaning of that pose. For example, you cover your eyes with one hand and you look into the distance and you are Columbus sighting the new world. Ah, <laughs> so all sorts of all sorts of hammy things that uh, that they found to be interesting and fun, and uh-huh. um, and the poetry was one of them. Mm-hmm. They got into history that way, and into storytelling. Uh, uh, the, the biggest, the most popular thing they did was poetry, reciting poetry, because in the Spanish-speaking world, poetry is a big deal. Okay. Even people who don't have all that much education very often know reams and reams of, of poems by heart. Oh, interesting. And, and they recite dramatically with postures and with gestures and, and so on. And, and it's, uh, they use it as a form of entertainment. Uh-huh. So I grew up hearing that, and I, of course, I was too young. I was uh, four, five years old, six years old, 
And uh, I was too young to understand all of what they were doing because it was adult work. It was work about history and drama and, and the, the, the griefs of life and the fear of death and all of that. I didn't understand beings, but, <laughs> but I could see that they were having tremendous fun and that whatever they were doing with language was exciting. And uh, by the time I was four, five, six, I, I, I knew I wanted to do that, whatever that was. Uh-huh. It, was a, it was obviously a game the adults were playing. Uh-huh. And it was a game that you played with words. Uh-huh. And to this day, I, I sort of think of poetry that way. I think of it as a game played with language. And and like all games, of course, it has to have rules. It has to have ways of breaking the rules. And it's uh, I find it uh, I find it a delight. It's been a delight in my life all my life. And when I came to English, the second language, my second and very almost my first, really, I loved it so that in school I was delighted to learn that you could write poetry in English too. Oh. That was a major discovery in, in elementary school. The teacher handed out poetry, and I said, "Oh my goodness, this is what my grandmother was doing." Uh-huh. Only these people are doing it in another language, and and it was such a joy to learn that you could do it in every language in the world. But poetry, poetry in English for me was was a bit different because I was older by then. And uh, it was not entirely play the way it had been in Spanish. It was playful. It was fun. It was generally something uh, exciting and upbeat. Whereas now I was missing my family. I was missing my relatives, both my grandmothers and my million cousins and aunts and uncles and so on. So I was I was homesick. And uh, I discovered that you could use poetry not just to amuse yourself and to have fun, but also to get rid of painful things. Mm-hmm. You could make a box out of, out of words and put the painful things into it. And that was very useful. And I found out that in a way that's really the chief function of, uh, of poetry. I love that. It speaks to me in, in many ways in terms of what connected me to poetry relates to the social work that I do, which Re- relates to what the social work that I, oh. that I do, oh. that I, I've always been involved with work in reducing suicide risk with people oh. and suicide bereavement, hard stuff. And, and in that oh. whole area, lots of hard experiences come up. And oh. when I started paying attention to art that was being created in my own community and nearby and talking to people who created art, whether it was poetry or painting or dance or sculpture, you know, whatever art, I had so many people who said, this saved my life. You know, they said, oh, yes, I'm not personal gain. And then also the the experience of it as an audience, you know, to see and hear how meaningful it is for people to to see that connection that this person who created this art gets things that I experience. I'm not alone. I mean, belong in a way that I didn't realize. And to me, that that's that's some of the power 
of poetry and other art. Yes. And so Isn't that crucial? Isn't yeah. that just crucial? Yeah. I think all the arts do that, but maybe because maybe because poetry is made out of language rather than paint or, or musical notes or anything like that, because it's made out of the stuff that we communicate to each other with uh-huh. all the time, uh-huh. maybe that's why it works better than any other art for that. So I, I, I sense some bias here. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe it is a bias, but I have a feeling, I have a feeling that poetry, in a sense, is really the the gossip of the human race. Ah. That it's something that we've had right from the beginning, that the tendency to tell each other what hurts has been with us right from the beginning, as well as what what makes us happy, of course. Uh Uh-huh. But but the fact that we use it to confide in one another, to tell each other what's broken, uh-huh. is is uh, is such a such a useful thing. And of course, motion, the motion of the dancer does that, and the colors of the painter, and the and everything, uh, drama does that. But but I have a feeling that maybe language is so close to the bone, so close to the human heart. That that makes a lot of sense. That's it's very interesting. Yeah. Would you be willing to share a poem now, as we're talking about this? It would oh, be sure. For all to hear you. Yes, I think I'll read. Uh, I think I'll read something from my most recent um, from my most recent book. It's called Her Place in These Designs, and this is one that is very personal. Mm-hmm. It's called Guidelines. And, uh, and it fits in with what we've been talking about. Guidelines. Here's what you need to do since time began. Find something, diamond rare or carbon cheap, it's all the same, and love it all you can. It should be something close, a field, a man, a line of verse, a mouth, a child asleep, that feels like the world's heart since time began. Don't measure much or lay things out or scan. Don't save yourself for later. You won't keep. Spend yourself now on loving all you can. It's going to hurt. That was the risk you ran with your first breath. You knew the price was steep. That loss is what there is since time began subtracting from your balance. That's the plan. Too late to quibble now. You're in too deep. Just love what you still have while you still can. Don't count on schemes. It's far too short a span from the first sowing till they come to reap. One way alone to count since time began. Love something. Love it hard. Now while you can. That's beautiful. Thank you. And it's it's so interesting to me to hear you sharing your words and that message of love. And and it, it takes me also to a, a poet friend whose style is very different than yours. And that is exactly his message in, in his work. Uh, Oh, sure. You can get the same message across with all sorts of methods. Yeah, yeah. 
That's beautiful. Well, I think I think the two of the things that we have been talking about to each other as a race from the very beginning have been love and the passage of time. Uh-huh. And how it takes so much away. So that that's what that poem is about for me. Uh-huh. About how important it is not not to lose everything without keeping it in some way, without capturing it somehow. Mm-hmm. And also in that poem, you you touch on loss being part of love, that that's going to happen. Oh, yeah. um, and and I, I find that being a message that people shy away from, when, mm-hmm. when, whether it's in, in art or in, in conversation. So many times I, I find people talking about things with the idea that somehow they're not going to be touched by loss. That's not to be, that's not supposed to happen. Oh, it happens. Yeah, and my my reaction, my message, my belief is that loss is part of love, as you said in your poem. And giving up love would be the way to give up loss. And there's no question about, well, is that what I want? Is no love in my life? Absolutely, I want love. That's sure. Well, the fact that love is risky. Mm -hmm. The fact that love is risky because you know that you could lose it very, very quickly. Death comes Mm -hmm. or distance comes or or disaffection or what have you, and you could lose it. And yet you have to take the chance and accept Mm -hmm. it when it comes because without risk, there's nothing to be had. (laughs) So without risk, that's part of it, too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So you said this poem guidelines is from one of your from your recent book. Yes, and, it's and from I, her place in these designs, which I, I have a special feeling for because the front cover has a picture of one of my husband's sculptures in it. Ah. <laughs> so when you said earlier about poetry and the special power of poetry. I'm imagining some pretty interesting discussions between you and your husband, the sculptor. (laughs) Yes, we used to. We used to talk about our different arts all the time. (laughs) Uh And would he accept that that you were right, that poetry was the powerful? Oh, we never argued about that. We argued about (laughs) everything else, but not about that. (laughs) No, no. Well, he had a he had a message of his own. He had uh, a special feeling for the human body, uh-huh. for the human being, actually. He was a, a very humane person, uh-huh. uh, and he was a teacher and worked with young people for 30 years and so on. So he, he, he transported that love into his very, very delicate, very careful treatment of the human body uh-huh. in sculpture, whether dressed or nude. Uh-huh. And uh, and I, I was always touched by by the way he captured the posture of people, the expressions uh-huh. of faces when he did uh, the, the head, the face. Uh-huh. He used to say that he loved models who were old people because the wrinkles, the wrinkles and and the marks of time were so useful to look at because that's how time writes on us. Uh huh. Yeah. That's that is lovely, and and valuing that. Is, yes. is not yes. how everybody approaches life and aging. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So were you, you were writing since very young, um, you were exposed to art always. How did you and your husband meet related to your both being artists? We, we met at a wedding. Uh, we met at the wedding of mutual friends, uh-huh. and that was on in Thanksgiving of 1951. Now get this, Thanksgiving. How long is there between Thanksgiving and New Year's Eve? Not very long. <laughs> About five weeks. He proposed. He proposed at the New Year's Eve party given by the same couple. Oh. <laughs> and I, I was so crazy that I said yes. Uh, and it turned out to be the right thing to do. We were married 63 years. Best thing I ever did. Beautiful. And you haven't said his name for people to know who is your beloved husband. Yes. My husband was named Alfred Moskowitz. He was a sculptor. He was a teacher of shop in the public schools of New York City for many years. And he taught, uh, oh, he taught metal and wood and uh, um, ceramics, electricity, uh, all sorts. He taught almost all of the different shops. And he loved working with his hands. But his real first love was art. He painted also. He painted very well, very beautifully. And... uh, and he and then he moved on to the third the third dimension, and he loved that. Ah, yeah. He was very very busy with the with the art with the art community first in New York and then here in Newburyport. Uh huh. Yeah. Did you do some poetry related to his work? Oh, I have done a lot of poems uh, about about Alfred and uh, and so forth. Now, of course, they're kind of sad ones because I lost him two years ago. But, um, oh, let me see if I can find... Uh, wait, hold it a minute. Let me see if I can find one about... <laughs> I can't right now. Let's converse and I'll look for something. Well, and actually what I was wondering was that that concept that interestingly was taught to me by a person who is a poet and also a native speaker speaker of Spanish, although she's from Mexico, um, taught me the phrase ekphrastic poetry. Oh, and, uh, yes. 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 And so that's, I, I'm wondering also, are there some of your poems that were written as a, in relationship to any of his work or vice versa? No, as a matter of fact, people used to ask him, how come you never did a sculpture of your wife? Uh And he said, oh, I'm afraid to tackle that. (laughs) 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 Because he also had a... He had a really wild sense of humor, and uh, uh, he said, no, no, if she doesn't like it, I'm going to hear from her. <laughs> <laughs> that is lovely. Yeah. And let me when say... I... Yes, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. I'm trying to find... I'm trying to find something about him in one of these books, but I'm, I'm looking through so many... Well, I guess in a way this guidelines is really about Alfred. The one that I read. That is beautiful, yeah. Um, you know. Um, uh, I 
a cheerful um, one. I want to ask you about this. Oh, here's person. one. Oh, okay. May I interrupt you? Absolutely. Here's one that I'm asked to read all the time. This is a rather upbeat one. This is called, The Poet's Husband Engages in Gourmet Cooking. <laughs> because he enjoyed cooking, and I used to throw him out of the kitchen all the time. <laughs> I would say, no, no, leave me alone. It's a small kitchen. There's only room for one. I, that which was a very dumb thing to do because he was <laughs> a good cook. And eventually I got smart, and I said, you know, come on in. <laughs> and he did some cooking, and he was good at it. However, what he was not good at was putting things away or cleaning up afterward. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's familiar. So, so he would leave. He would leave the pots in the sink, and he would, mm -hmm. and he would call me fifty times while I was off somewhere trying to finish a poem. He would call me and say, "Where are the measuring cups? Where is the big <laughs> pot? Where is the spoon?" And finally, I wrote this poem, which is a kind of semi-nasty one, <laughs> but it, <laughs> but it's called "The Poet's Husband." engages in gourmet cooking. My better half, who's in the kitchen, has summoned me again to pitch in, clear out the sink, take down two bowls. He's proud he can reverse our roles, nurture his skill for fancy cooking. I wish he'd nurture skill at looking. No, better still, genius for finding where things are kept without reminding for wiping, sweeping, washing, drying, removing grease from earlier frying. <laughs> but no, in half an hour, 12 times I'm called from soon forgotten rhymes, from perfect metaphors chewed up to point out pan and eight ounce cup and colander there on their hooks where one may find them if one looks. <laughs> At times like these, one's thoughts embark on reveries forbidden dark, whose very joy invites distress. The phrase, no forwarding address. <laughs> Life in some distant, not quite hovel, with someone working on his novel, wholly immersed in chapter three, living on cake and cheese like me. <laughs> Isn't that a terrible poem? It's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> well, he loved it. That's and perfect. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> so that's one. That's lovely. Yeah. yeah, I've written poems about him gardening and, and, and sculpting downstairs and so on. And mm -hmm. So he is very much with me and with will be till the end of my life. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That is what I believe as well. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to hear something else sort of funny? Sure. Okay. I told you about life in New York and how it mixes up people and make everybody uh, sort of share the nationality and the religion and the tastes of everybody else. Here's a poem that is is made out of truth. This is called Purim Parade, and you know what Purim is, of course. It's that Jewish holiday in uh, in April, which is all about Queen Esther and, and the king and, and so forth. There's a whole long story behind it. But what was fun 
about it to me is the fact that everybody showed up for the Purim parade in Queens. Queens is uh, is the most uh, the most um, multilingual county in the entire country. And it's the one where people speak more, most languages and where people share most. So this is Purim Parade, and it's me standing at the side of the street watching the parade pass. Who's this coming now? Queen Esther in tinsel wig. Two sheiks on skateboards. Tyrannosaurus Rex clutching his mother's hand. Death striding on stilts. A coven of small witches shrieking in Spanish. The Temple Youth Group twirling gilt batons, shivering in their red tights. St. Benedict School, the Emerald Band, elegant in kilts, bagpipes, skirling hatikla. <laughs> That's quite a parade. <laughs> and that is quite a parade because, of course, you're supposed to dress up. You're supposed to be in disguise of some sort, and people used to come in all sorts of disguises. And some of the attendees at, for that parade were, were actually from Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. So it was very, um, it was very Hamish. It was very family-like, very familial. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it's one of the scenes that I remember with most affection from New York. Oh, beautiful. I actually do not know about such parades. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't imagine there are too many of those in other parts of the country, but in Queens, you can expect anything. That that It would be perfect. I'm in Lawrence, Kansas, which has both a major university, um, state university, as well as Haskell Indian Nations University, so lots of different influences. And with the different things that happen and, and a love of parades in this town, I'm very surprised that we don't have this. Perhaps I... Oh, well, you can start trouble. You can start <laughs> doing Make trouble wherever you go. <laughs> Great motto. <laughs> yes, you should start it. I think, that's, I think that's one of the ways that we're going to finally end up acting like one family, which is what we are. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. Hey, what I want to ask you so that we don't forget, tell me how Johnny Longfellow connected with you. Oh, Johnny Longfellow, who is really John Hostra, of course, is an extremely talented, he's very an extremely gifted poet, a natural uh-huh. poet. I think he must have been born to do this. And I met him, he was one of the first people that I met when my husband and I moved up here from New York City. He was, uh, I was sort of collecting poets because I wanted to start a group here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I met him right away and, uh, and I thought, oh boy, this is solid gold. Because he had incredible variety. He could do formal verse and free verse. He could do different voices of mankind so that he could sound like uh, like a woman living in the gutter, like a man doing this and that, like an aristocrat. Like he, he could be a persona and put on the masks of others in a way that told me he understood the human mind and the human heart. Uh-huh which is one of the enriching things about his, his poem, that he can not only understand people, he can be the other people. 
So I learned to respect and admire and enjoy his work right away. And uh, and when he lived in uh, in Newburyport, where I live now, uh, he used to come to some of our meetings. But of course, then he moved away. So now he he only comes to our readings, and it's always a treat when he shows up. And, and he obviously has a very deep fondness and respect for you. And, and well, that's mutual. Yeah, but he did yeah. speak of you as a mentor, and gave me the sense that you have nurtured lots of different poets of different ages and backgrounds. Well, I started a poetry group in Queens when I lived there. Uh, I, did, I was one of the three or four people who got it going, and it was great fun. It's still going strong. It's called the Fresh Meadows Poets because we used to meet at the Fresh Meadows Library in Queens. And they're still, they're huge now. I think they, they must have over 40 members now. And then uh, I helped to get one started uh, um, in, uh, oh, I forget what the town is now here in, here in Massachusetts, but they invited me to come out and get them started, and that was great fun. And then here in Newburyport, I started the, uh, the uh, Powell River Poets, which is going strong. We are 24. Uh, the, the group is just marvelous. They, they feel like my extended family. We really rejoice in one another's triumphs. We get together once a month. We have readings every other month where we invite guests to read, generally a guest and someone from the group reading with that guest. So we're we're having a lot of fun, but we're also uh, kind of making the community used to the delights of poetry and trying to get them to believe what we all believe, that poetry belongs in your life. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And I'm thinking that with your long career of writing, that you've touched several generations of writers. You know, that there there are young writers who know your work and are learning some things and gaining some, some support and encouragement from your work. And that's been going on for a long time. Oh, that's true. That's absolutely true because... Um, I, I've taught, uh, I taught in the New York City high school system, so a lot of the kids that I taught creative writing to, the boys especially, when I said, we're going to have a poetry unit now, there would be a groan, like that. <laughs> and generally the boys would say, I, I don't like that, and so on. But what was interesting to me is how, how very often it happened that by the end of, of the semester, someone would come up to me from the class and say the best thing we did all term was the poetry. Oh, wonderful. And that felt like a major triumph. That was uh-huh. really, that was my Pulitzer. Uh-huh. To have a student tell me that because it meant that, that somebody's life would be enriched for good. Because once you fall in love with poetry, you don't fall out. Uh-huh. So that, that you say that, yeah. Yeah, no, it's true, it's true. And sometimes the husbands who show up with wives, you know, they, the wife brings him to a poetry reading now, and the husband slumps in his chair, and I know, I know this man was threatened. <laughs> <laughs> he came under threat. And very often at the end of, at the end of such a reading, uh, it's the man who comes up to me and says, well, I didn't know I would like poetry, but I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's that's rewarding. Yeah, that is really wonderful. Yeah. I I host an event 
each year on World Suicide Prevention Day, which is September 10th each year. And September the, 10th? Yes, September 10th. Oh, that's good to know. Is World Suicide Prevention Day. Um, uh-huh. It was declared by the World Health Organization. And, uh-huh. and my event is called Words Save Lives. Oh, and it's with poets only, and now it's poets and storytellers and comics yeah. and musicians, and we added drag performers. And people that I, I always invite people of different ages and backgrounds to be yeah. at the mic. And and it's this wonderful opportunity. And, and what prompted me to, to say that right now is that one of the years of doing this, I saw a couple who came who I'd never seen at any poetry event. Um, he His career had been working on railroads. Her career had been working um, as like a, uh, in an administrative assistant kind of position with schools and different things. They had a, a bunch of sons who we'd cross paths with our sons playing baseball together. I'd never seen them at any kind of poetry thing that I'd seen in our, been at, at our community. And they were there because one of the poets had played football at Kansas University. Aha, uh-huh. he made a connection. Yeah, and so they, they wanted to see, his, this poet's name is Topher Anneking, and they wanted <laughs> to hear Topher uh, as a poet, and they had a blast. And it was so <laughs> cool because it was that same thing. Like, you know, like they weren't really sure what they were getting into, but because it was Topher, they were there, and it was a wonderful thing to see that yeah. open up. Yeah, and I know yeah that's, that's exactly yeah. what happens. Yeah, and I know for me, when I think back to my schooling, I think the way poetry was introduced to me in public school was with such rigidity that it had no appeal to me, that it was about the counting of the syllables, you know, it was this and that, not about the possibility of making my own meaning of how these words um, resonated for me. And so I never really thought about poetry, which was a huge loss in a lot of ways, including that my my longest term friend, her her husband is a poet. My the cousin who I'm closest to, he's a poet. But I oh wasn't, my wasn't reading poetry until, gosh, honestly, until a few years ago. Yeah. And then it's it's now that I I love this art. I love the amount of meaning that goes into phrases. Yeah. I love the way my brain is programmed to play around with things anyway. So my meaning may be different than somebody else's, and it's very fine. (laughs) Uh Oh, that's right. No, it's absolutely true. But, you know, uh, the thing is, when you're fishing for an audience, when you're fishing for someone to to hook to poetry, the trick is to do do it with as many hooks as you have. Mm Mm-hmm. You fish with the content, of course, because the content of the poem is always human life, mm-hmm. always the human life that we share. Mm-hmm. But there's also the hook of music, mm-hmm. and music is, is very important in poetry, and that's where the counting of the syllables comes in, and the use of rhyme, and the use of alliteration, mm-hmm. and all those tricks of the trade. And if those are taught right, if those are taught as as a form of play, because that's what they are. That's the poet playing. That's the poet having fun. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what I fell in love with in my grandmother's house. I didn't know beans, as I told you before, about what they were saying. The what escaped me. But uh-huh. what hooked me first was the fact that the way they were speaking the poem made me want to dance. Oh, wonderful. And it's meter that does that. Meter does that and rhyme does that because it also adds to the music. Um, so so don't, don't throw out the idea of, of hooking people with the music because it's, it's very important. The thing is you have to do it at the same time. Uh-huh. You can't begin with the how. You have to begin with both the how and the what. Mm-hmm. And then you've got them. Then you've got him. Once, once you, once you've taught a child or an adult, for that matter, that that he can have a what that wants to be spoken about. He can have a subject in his life, in his heart and mind, that needs to be talked about, uh, and that he can do it by means of these tricks, these wonderful, playful tricks. Then, then you you've got him. Yeah. There's a lovely child book called The Poem That Heals a Fish that's about a child trying to to learn what poetry is and all the different explanations people give him of different kind of beautiful life experiences that embody poetry. And then you just think about that. I I recently, I have a a grandson who just turned two last week. And so I, I have this book at my home, at our home, that that time when he's ready for that I'm excited <laughs> oh yes yes absolutely and a lot of kids a lot of kids as a matter of fact find it easier to be hooked to the sound than to anything mm-hmm. else they're, they're not as open to the content as they are to the sound if you if you make the connection between language and dancing for instance you've got them that's wonderful that's true. It works. Yeah, yeah. I love to do that by having them put their names up on the board and then tell me, well, where? how do you pronounce your name? Uh-huh. Is it Margaret or is it Margaret or is it Margaret? Uh-huh. And that way you get them thinking about the syllables and where the stress falls um, uh-huh. with their own names, with their identity. Uh-huh. And that's a great hook because then you can get them to do poems about their friends, which they begin with their friends' names, and then they say something about the friend in yeah. meter. Yes. yes. Oh, it's great fun. Anything yeah. that gets anything that gets the class to laugh at you because you're being foolish is great. <laughs> and and I believe that laughter is important. In and so. For example, and when I mention Words Save Lives, that event, I'm always very conscious about the sequencing of the performers so that yeah. there is levity interjected. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> we, we you want to hear a poem about the counting of syllables? Sure. Here's one called prosody, and prosody, of course, is the the art of the what, the how of poetry, the syllables, the, the imagery, the all of the mechanics of poetry that have nothing to do with the subject, but they provide the music. So prosody. The words are what I know, but they are no comfort. The comfort is in the music that says what I cannot know. 
The words are what I use to make a map of the one place there is, but it's the music takes me where I want to go. The words are addresses, but the things that live in them have always just moved and can be reached, if at all, through the music. The words are a name for the shadow I dress in. The radiance that wears me answers only to the music. Beautiful. And so we get to enjoy the sound, the way the sound affects us, and then... Yeah, that's right, because... Yeah, it's true, because that's what I learned when I started writing in English, that you can write about something very sad, something that has broken your heart, but because there is music to it, you are telling life in a way, you haven't beaten me. I can still dance, even if I'm dancing about something that is not cheerful. That's wonderful. And literal dance, I think of as very healing. So, yes. So that as a, as part of the poetry. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm imagining... I don't know how your readings and performances are, but I, I can imagine having a combination of dancing and poetry. <laughs> <laughs> you can do anything. Yes. You yes. can do absolutely anything with poetry. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I saw once, um, a, what, who was this? Oh, this was about... Oh, who were those people who crossed the mountains and died in the frost? They were, you know who I'm talking about. The woman who went with her husband and they froze on the way to the west. The, 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 the something party. The Donner party? Is that The Donner party. That was it. That was it. Yes. I'm beginning to forget things, you know. I'm 86. But anyway, <laughs> this Donner party... Uh, was was acted out here. It was recited, beautifully recited on stage with a dance taking place on stage. Uh-huh. And the dance was telling the story of this incredible trip that got all these people killed, uh-huh. most of them anyway. Uh-huh. So you can combine poetry with dance. Yes. And with music. I, I do that. It's called melopoeia. That's something that I learned in my grandmother's house also, how to do poetry with a musical background. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's Melope, and I do that with, uh, with a guitarist named John Tavano and, uh, and another poet named Alfred Nicole, who was a member of the Powers, and we've done a lot of that. And that, that works very well. That's but the, 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 I think the arts work very well together, all of them, all of them. In my community, there is a, a group that I'm part of that's, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Um, it's, a, it's a people's-based arts group around uh-huh. social justice and using arts for that. And so I think it was two years ago here in Lawrence, Kansas, there, uh, the chapter of um, hosted a series of events around climate change and art. And mm. one of those events was poetry by a woman here named Elizabeth Schultz 
accompanied by dance by a woman, Joan Stone. So each of the poems was danced by Joan. And so it was this beautiful thing of these two women, you know, at the front of the audience with Beth reading her poetry and Joan dancing. And it was, oh. it was a wonderful thing about, and, and again, that the, in this case, the art was about climate change. And, and so it isn't it marvelous to watch one art enriching another? Yeah. And, and in this case, the, the space that was used, w- the walls were displaying paintings related to climate change. Ah. You know, so you had this, this three sets of arts all combined in this. Beautiful. Three arts combined. That's yeah. marvelous. Yeah. That is marvelous. No, I really like that kind of experimentation a lot. I think that uh, that the more we experiment with the arts, the more they enrich our lives. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want and to what give a kind of, What kind of poetry, what kind of poetry do you, does this group produce? Is it is it political? Is it uh, The U.S. Social? Department yeah. of Arts and Culture is involved with all types of art, so not just poetry, but the poetry thing that's major for for this group is that once a year um, in late January, early February, so this this part has just happened, um, Uh USDAC um, issues a call for people to host story circles that are people gathering to share their experiences and the themes, their prompt questions, but they Uh tend to be around the sense of belonging and not belonging. And then the USDAC.us website includes a link to uh, what's called the story portal. All the stories get uploaded, all that people get permission to be uploaded, and they also get reviewed by a set of people who create a poetic state of the union. What a marvelous program. Yeah, there's a national event of that being um, released publicly and then of course that's recorded on a, a film so that it can be both live broadcast and shared later. So the idea is instead of only the president getting to do that state of the union, that people across the country get to yeah. create their statement in poetry. Uh, Marsha, would you do me an enormous favor? Would you send me the link to that? Absolutely. I would love to to, to, to get to know that. Yeah, and lots of different artists doing so many different things. I think about in in New York City, where you're familiar, um, there's a woman named Betty Yu whose work is with film and using film and other active activities, art activities, to fight the gentrification of the Chinatown area so that people, you know, give a voice to the, the benefits of keeping those housing and storefronts available to the, the people who've historically been there, you know, and there are all kinds of good things that, that you wonderful things happening in New York. Really wonderful. Is, yeah. I think we're living in a kind of golden age of art. If only we don't starve it to death by giving it no funds. Uh huh. You know, I think we need to help the art survive, but, they're, but they're, they're doing beautifully right now because so many people are turning to them. Mm-hmm. It seems so important. Like to me, it, it gets back again to the way that art can communicate, and sometimes to people who weren't expecting it, but That's can right. open open minds. Sure. And I remember in my own experience working for a very long time. I worked in nonprofit in mental health 
and and I was at a workshop on storytelling. And yeah. the idea, the reason for the workshop was really about how people who work for different causes can get the attention of audience who can can help share resources, whether it's time or money, um, and letting people know about the, these things that are available to help people. Yeah. And, and the kind of crystal that I got out of that was people's brains are very differently affected by stories, no matter whether they're through song, through art of any kind, versus data. That if you tell people there's X number of people affected by this, brains kind of shut down. They don't open to new <laughs> ideas. Right. You know, yes. it doesn't. You don't. You don't decide that something's important just because people have. No, that's right. It's the story that does it. It's the story. Well, that's why I said before that uh, poetry is is a kind of the gossip of the human race. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not the statistics of the human race. It doesn't give you the numbers. It gives you the story. It's the voice of the individual, but the individual writ large. He's the individual shared with everybody else. Yeah, and and there's that beauty that that when we know that our experience is shared, it's yeah. such a huge relief. Of course we, it is. Yeah. We're not alone. Yeah, and that's that's really uh, yeah. again to me a gift of art. Oh, yes, absolutely. And all the arts do it. All the arts do it. They all make us feel, wow, there is something in that person that is answering to what I have experienced, which is a very comforting feeling. Yes, yes. You can even, in fact, one of the things I like to do with students is get them to write to people who can't possibly read what they write. I say, write to some ancestor of yours who died hundreds of years ago. Uh write to somebody on the other side of the earth that you're never going to meet write to one of your descendants who won't be around for another couple of centuries Uh uh I love doing that because it gets them thinking about what they themselves as individuals have to share with either the past or the future or with distance Uh That's 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 a good way to get kids to think outside of themselves yes and, sometimes, and I think we, we, we need to get out. Right. And I don't think that's just kids who need that encouragement. <laughs> no, it's everybody. It's everybody. I, I love talking to the future. You want to hear a poem about that? Yes. This is called, For My Great-Great-Grandson, the Space Pioneer. And this is someone who, of course, won't be here for a long time. As a matter of fact, do you mind if I read it in the original language first? Please do. I I wrote it in Spanish, and generally people at readings like to hear something in Spanish. And then I'll read the the English version. Is that okay? Yes. Wonderful. Para mi tatara nieto, el astro pionero. Tú, fulanito, que por los caminos de mi sangre te lanzas al futuro, dime si te llevas los mil sabores del viento, la voz del río, las lenguas de musgo y el hecho que cantan la tierra. ¿Y dónde dejaste la lluvia? Que no se te pierda, ni el gemir de la gaviota en su desierto azul, ni esas estrellas tibias como caricias que no encontrarás en tus noches de acero. Fíjate que no te falten mariposas. Apréndete el color de las horas, 
y toma, que en esta cajita de huesos te dejo el perfume de los mares. For my great-great-grandson, the space pioneer. You, what's your name? Who down the byways of my blood are hurtling toward the future. Tell me if you've packed the thousand flavors of the wind, the river's voice, the tongues of moss and fern singing the earth. And where have you left the rain? Careful, don't lose it. Nor the moan of the seagull in her blue desert, nor those stars warm as caresses you will not find again in your nights of steel. Watch that you don't run short of butterflies. Learn the colors of the hours. And here, in this little case of bones, I've left you the perfume of the sea. Beautiful. And and I love that you shared it in both Spanish and English in that the comments that you shared about the musicality of poetry and the effect of that. You know, for me, hearing you read it in Spanish, there are a few words that I recognize, but mostly I, I hear the rhythm of your voice, and that's beautiful. Well, the rhythm, even if you don't understand the language, uh, the rhythm sort of gets through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Somebody told me once after a reading, my favorite thing that you read this time around was the one you read in Spanish. And I said, oh, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. But where did you learn Spanish? She said, I don't know a word of Spanish. I was just, I was just listening to this music of it. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. But people do respond. Yes. But also, I, 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 like, I like telling the young that the world has to be cared for. Mm-hmm. that you have to watch that you don't run short of butterflies. Yes, yes. Yes. We are actually at the end of our hour. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I have yacked you to death. It's been wonderful, and I imagine <laughs> listeners thinking, what a treat this has been. I want well, more. It's been a- <laughs> I want more. <laughs> It's been a treat for me. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Thank you. And for those who, who we maybe you forgot from the beginning, but this person, this delightful person we've been talking with is Rina P. Espayat. And in the Facebook post, there's information about her, how to find her work. We want people to know and enjoy poetry in the way that you just got introduced to it today. Rina, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to Daniel Smith, who made it possible for people to listen to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. And thanks to listeners. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And as I say that, I know you did. Um, And so long till next time.